following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, welcome if you are on the live stream this, this morning. We're glad that you're here with us. Our scripture reading this morning is in Ezekiel 3. If you would turn there, please, in your Bibles and follow along. Ezekiel 3. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, and this is a reference to Ezekiel, be sure to know. Son of man is here referring to Ezekiel, a phrase that the Lord Jesus picks up and makes one of his favorites in the Gospels. But this is not speaking to Jesus, this is speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, eat what you find. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So he was supposed to imbibe these words and then he was going to kind of spit them back out again, if you will, in prophecy. And uh, remember the words at the end of verse uh, 10 of chapter 2, there were lamentations and mourning and woe. So it wasn't going to be uh, full of good news. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. I want you to take note of that. Somebody who doesn't listen to the minister of God, to the prophet, to the apostle, to the pastor, who's giving godly advice, you know what they're really doing? They're not listening to God. That makes it a whole lot different, doesn't it? Verse 8, Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads, like adamant stone, harder than flint I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You see that God is constituting Ezekiel to be a strong man of the Lord. He's not going to shy away from, from conflict with regard to his teaching. He's not going to say, oh, I'm sorry for offending you, that kind of thing. He's going to preach the word and just go on preaching it. That's the figure of having a, a, a face that's strong or a forehead that's strong against their foreheads. Just as stubborn as they are, Ezekiel will be just as strong in his preaching. Verse 10, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. And go, get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from this place, from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheels beside them and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Abib who dwelt by the river Kibar and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. So Ezekiel is maybe not super happy that he has this assignment. This is a bit of a downer for him. But he has to ponder what he's been told. Verse 16, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, 
I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul." Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I arose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. Then the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself inside your house, and you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them, so that you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. God bless that. Also the reading of his word. Forty years ago last month, our church began, and I've never been able to pin down the exact date, but I believe it was in July of 1981, and uh, we haven't made mention of that really or made a commemoration of it, although it wouldn't be wrong to do so. Uh, July has escaped us already, uh, and we're in August here, so uh, we can still thank the Lord for his faithfulness to the assembly For most of those years, our church has supported Jack and Bev McMahon uh, in the mission field, and we are grateful to have them back here with us for who knows what what is this, maybe the the, uh, eighth time or tenth time or however many times you've been here over the years, we we have lost track of all that. But is it true 35 years in New Zealand? Is that right? 36, okay. Well, we're one year behind, but... uh, That is faithfulness, my friends, and uh, they have been a part of our church ever since uh, those first days back in the 1980s, and we are grateful for that. We see our missionaries as extensions of the ministry here. They are ministers of the gospel on our behalf, uh, not just, um, how can I say, freelancers or free agents or, uh, you know, uh, people out there... uh, just doing a work on their own, but their churches that stand with them and behind them and support them are part of the team as well. So as they minister, we all bear fruit, uh, and uh, we're just glad to have them as part of the team here, uh, stretching the gospel out to halfway across the world. So this morning, Jack will be bringing the message, and then uh, this evening, uh, you'll be able to hear a little update about how things are going there. So Uh, Pay attention to the PowerPoint as well. We'll have that, uh, Lord willing, this morning. No uh, printed notes for you, but you just pay close attention and and commit what he says to uh, your heart and to your mind. Amen. 
Brother Jack, look forward to your message this morning. Thank you. <laughs> and a handshake. <laughs> it is a delight to be able to open the word with you this morning. And I think of the wonderful proclaimers of God's word that he's raised up here in this congregation. You're truly blessed to have uh, Pastor Sachs and now Pastor Matt, Lord, uh, the Lord, the Lord has used these men to preach the word of God faithfully, uh, bringing it out clearly every week. And it's such a joy and delight to see the growth in your lives, because that's how we grow is through the word of God. Uh, as we get anchored in God's truth, we we learn about the Lord. And as we put those things into obedience in our lives, we progress in our Christian sanctification this morning, I'd like to, uh, well, first, before I say that, I just want to thank you for your prayers. Um, as Pastor mentioned, you know, we are a team. Even though we don't see each other very often, I'm very aware, aware of uh, the fact that we have people that are undergirding us and supporting us in prayer, just as we want to be supporting you in prayer. And that means so much. Uh, I just cannot thank you enough uh, for lifting up not only us, but each other and those who are working around the world in prayer. There's nothing more important that you could possibly do than to, uh, well, in our mission, we call it the air campaign. You know, in a military, you've got the air campaign and then the ground troops go in. But without the air campaign, the ground troops would be slaughtered. <laughs> So we thank you so much for the air campaign that you are leading uh, in your prayers for others. So this morning, I'd like you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to look at a passage uh, that exalts uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and I've entitled the message, The Preeminent Christ, from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And I'll read the passage, and then I'd like to um, explore it a little bit with you this morning. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel 
that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes to your teaching this morning, that we might come to know and love Jesus even more as we behold your beauty in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin with verse 23. It's the last verse I want to end on today, but I'd like to start there as well because he says that he doesn't want you to be moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel because Paul knows that there are those who have moved away from the hope of the gospel. Even in his generation, as he writes, he's in prison. He's writing from Rome. He's under house arrest. And he has never been to the church in Colossae. He's never met these people face to face. But he has sent Tychicus and Onesimus on a journey to bring this letter to them because there's a man by the name of Epaphras who was the founder, apparently, of this church. Epaphras uh, was perhaps in Ephesus where he met Paul, and Paul was teaching at a school there in Ephesus, and he taught there for uh, 18 months. And Epaphras uh, came to know the Lord, and he went back 100 miles to the east of uh, Ephesus to a place called Colossae, and uh, there he began a church. And now this man Epaphras has come all the way to Rome to seek for Paul. You know, in those days, they couldn't just get on the Internet and find out answers real quick. He had to travel a long ways, and he came all the way to Rome so that he could bring this concern he had about the church to Paul and to get some help. And the problem really is that there's people were moving away from the hope of the gospel. There were, uh, there were uh, different kind of uh, things coming into the church that were false teaching. Uh, there was incipient forms of belief, of Gnosticism, that reduced Christ from being equal to God. And Jewish myths and Jewish legalism that was coming into the church. You know, they didn't have a perfect church, just like we don't have a perfect church. We've had problems all through the centuries, and uh, we need to be reminded not to move, to be steadfast in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we are in enemy territory. As long as we're in this body on this earth, we are in a battle. And we need to take up the full armor of God, and we need to prepare ourselves by standing firm. Now, what is the hope of the gospel that which we stand firm on? And I think he brings it out very clearly. Uh, this passage, I think we could, could bring it into two things. The preeminence of Christ in his person and the preeminence of Jesus Christ in his work. If you get those two things, you've got a good handle on what the hope of our uh, gospel is. And this is the message that we want to fully imbibe, fully, uh, I like the Ezekiel passage this morning, we want to digest it. And it is a powerful message that we want to be able to give out to others so that they might hear of the wonderful Christ that we love and serve and loves us so much. 
So this morning, uh, we're going to look at these points. And I want to start with a question that Jesus asked, because I think that this is the most powerful question that you could ask. It's a helpful question, I think, in introducing someone to the gospel. And that's simply to ask them what they believe about Jesus Christ. It gives them opportunity to say what they believe, and it gives you opportunity to examine and see where their heart is and how they respond to that. But here's the question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 18. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. If they were taking a quiz show, they would have got buzzed every time. They, they didn't have the right answer on any of that. But Jesus probes further. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a testimony. I'm so thankful for uh, Peter and God using him in this way you know sometimes peter didn't always say the right things one time jesus said get behind me satan another time he says flesh and blood has not revealed this to you peter was is really on the extremes here and some of the things that he said but here he was right on target and he gave uh, a high exaltation of who jesus christ is and that is what the church is based upon that is that is our creed that is our understanding that is our life is that you are the Son of God. And so um, we explore that a bit this morning in, in the book of Colossians. And in chapter uh, 1, verse 15, we see Jesus' preeminence, first of all, in relation to his Father, his preeminence in relation to his Father. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Jesus Christ, it says, is the icon. That's the word that is used here. We get the word icon from this. He is the photograph. He is the exact image of the Lord, of, the, of God himself. This passage is very meaningful to me, especially because when I first became a Christian, right before I became a Christian, I was exposed to a group called the Christadelphians who didn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. The lady that led me to Christ um, shared the gospel with me. I did come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I still had struggles with the deity of Christ, perhaps for the first year of my life, trying to understand what I had heard before and what the Bible taught. But slowly as I began to be exposed to God's truth more and more, I realized 
how important this truth is. And so it's a very important passage of scripture to me personally. So he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact replica. There was a, um, a man, I don't know if you ever remember Art Linkletter. Uh, he, he, he enjoyed children. He loved children. And he had a gift of uh, bringing out what children were thinking. And he even had a program along that line. And one time he saw a kid that was drawing a, a, a picture. And Art said to him, uh, what are you drawing? And the little boy said, uh, very confidently, I'm drawing a picture of God. And Art said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little boy said just as confidently, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> well, you know, he, he had it all under control. <laughs> but we do know what God looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me just share a few more verses with you. Hebrews 1, verse 3. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express, precise image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's another great verse. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one, this is where Art must have got this thought, <laughs> No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him. He has explained him. He has demonstrated him with complete and perfect clarity. Here's another one. Yep, you're getting there. <laughs> That's the one. Jesus said to him, Oh, let's see, is that one? Let's see, John chapter 14, verse 9. This is Philip, of course. Philip had been with the Lord for three years. And he says, Lord, show us the Father and it would satisfy us. And I think Jesus must have been a bit sad because after being there for three years, he still hadn't connected the dots. And so Jesus goes on and he says, Have I been so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And so he is the exact icon, the exact reflection of God the Father. What a wonderful Savior. He is the preeminent one in relation to the Father. He is the exact image. Next, I want to talk about in, in relation to creation, Jesus is, well, before I go there, I missed one little thought here. It says in verse uh, 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. <clears throat> Don't stumble over that. There are those who say, see, he's firstborn. That means he's born first. He was created by God, and therefore he is not equal to God. There are cults that teach that. But firstborn can mean born first but you know also in certain contexts it has a different meaning it it actually is talking about the right of inheritance it's not talking about time it's talking about position it's talking about status and this 
passage, uh, firstborn, is not relating to time. It's relating to his position. It's just like in the Bible you had Ishmael and you had um, his brother, Isaac. Who was older? Ishmael by a few seconds, maybe. (laughs) He was the oldest. He had the right of the firstborn, but he sold his birthright, and Isaac received the right of the firstborn, even though he wasn't born first. You have the same with Esau and Jacob. Um, Esau was born first, but Jacob received the right of the firstborn. And here we see the Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn, meaning that he is the highest. He is the exalted one over all creation. Psalm 89, 27, I think, puts it very clearly where it says, also I will make him my firstborn. What does that mean? The highest of the kings of the earth. So don't let that stump you. Don't let the cults come along and confuse you by using this passage out of context. This is... uh, clearly not undermining his deity, but supporting it. And later on, it says he's the firstborn from the dead. And so he is, um, in relation to the Father, equal. In relation to creation, it says uh, he is the firstborn. And then it goes on and it says all things uh, in verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So he is the source and the support and the end of all things. In fact, if you count it, in that passage there is eight alls and one everything. So that's summing it all up real quick uh, Jesus Christ has all power he is he is the infinite creator of the universe so he is above creation he is over creation and as we think about that you know when you think about creation it's a it's a pretty big scope to take in uh, in fact uh, if you compare just the the bigness, the vastness of space. Uh, and you consider our sun, that's represented by the orange ball there. And can you see the earth? It's kind of blurry, the word blur, it's blurry there, but um, there's the earth compared to the sun. If you were to put it like in perspective, if you had Jupiter and the earth compared to the sun, the earth is the little dot. You could put, if the, if the sun was hollow, you could put 1.3 million earths inside the sun. Does that make you kind of get things in perspective here? We're, we're all living on that little planet there, and it's very small. Now, the sun itself is just an average-sized star. In fact, if you compare it with uh, Betelgeuse there, you could get, and, and the sun is... Oh, it's that one there. That's the sun. Um, You could get 1.6 billion suns into Betelgeuse if it was hollow, according to the scientists. So uh, 
when it says he is over all creation, it, and you go back to Genesis 1, and he spoke, and he said, uh, let there be light, and let there be the stars. You know, that's all it says, but that all happened in the one instant. And so this is the kind of Savior that we worship. He is preeminent over creation. And it goes on here in verse 16, and it talks about uh, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Dropping down now, go down to verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together, it says. Everything holds together. Oh, here's one more. Before I go on to the holding together verse, this was taken from Voyager 1. Um, on February 14th, 1990, the last photo from Voyager 1 before their cameras turned off forever, uh, this photo shows the Earth as it truly is, a lonely outpost of life in an incomprehensibly vast universe. And so this is just the Voyager leaving our solar system. Um, and this is the last shot. And here it is right here. This is, this is the enlargement. This is the actual shot. There's the sun. And there's a little ring way out here, and it, you have to enlarge it, but here's a ring going around the sun. And right there is Earth. That's an actual photograph. Uh, sent back from Voyager 1 as it departed in 1990 into the vast unknown. Wow, what a, that, that's where all the billions of people that have ever lived, lived on that little tiny little planet just made perfectly for us to enjoy. And that gives us a, a bit of the scope on the size of it all. Psalm 8 verses 3 and 4 puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now, verse 17 says, by him all things hold together. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to get way over my head here, but I, Pastor Matt can figure it all out and correct me <laughs> because <laughs> he's got a better background and all that than I do. <clears throat> but this word hold together uh, is to unite parts into a whole. It's kind of like the glue that holds everything together. And this is something that uh, the most brilliant minds on earth have tried to figure out what holds everything together. Uh, Stephen Hawking, who's passed away now, thought that uh, he was come, going to come up with the theory of everything. And the theory of everything basically is a proposed notion in the scientific community which states that there is one all-encompassing theory that proposes a framework of understanding of all physics combining the quantum mechanics and classical physics. I told you I won't understand what I'm reading here. Into a unified approach which explains the laws of the universe and gravity, black holes, all these kind of things uh, he tries to come up with to show what is holding it all together. 
And, you know, the Bible explains it in five words. It says, by him, all things consist. All things hold together by him. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, our molecules would just fly apart. Uh, We would dissolve and everything else would dissolve. He is sustaining us on on the quantum scale as well as the uh, massive scale of the universe. Jesus Christ is holding it all together. And I, I took another little quote here because I can't say these things without reading them, but... It's talking about the atom. And uh, we have here a picture of an atom with its protons, uh, which are, uh, are they the blue ones? And and the neutrons, maybe the protons are red and the neutrons are blue. And the electrons, the little black ones that go around at such high speeds that you can't even imagine. And just listen to this. Atoms are so small that they cannot be seen directly. The nucleus is composed of protons and neutrons. Electrons are negatively charged. They are attracted by the protons, um, which are positively charged. But like repels like, doesn't it? So if you get a magnet and you get two negatives that will push each other apart. If you get a negative, a positive, it will pull together very strongly. Like repels like. What holds protons, which are positive, together in the nucleus of an atom? Of course, since the electric force is constantly trying to drive the protons apart, the force that holds them all together must be be stronger than the electric force. And keep in mind, the electric force gets stronger as the charged particles get closer together. And the protons in a nucleus are very close together. As a result, the force that holds the protons and neutrons together must be very strong. Well, in a brilliant stroke of imagination, Physicists have named this the strong force. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) The strong force holds it all together. But you know what? We would say here today, no. Jesus Christ holds it all together. It's Jesus Christ. Because it's right there in verse 17. Very clearly. 2,000 years ago. He is over all creation. In relation to the church, verses 18 to 19, we read this. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his uh, person, of who he is, is worthy of the leadership of the church. He is the head of the church. And each one of us that have experienced his salvation, we can say he truly is the head because he's the one that gave me life. He's the one that sustains me. Each one of us are being upheld and sustained by Jesus Christ himself. Not only does he hold the universe together and the atoms together, he holds the church together by his own power. And this is the preeminent Lord that we serve. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't know what all went into that word, but I endured the cross. 
despising the shame. That's what you and I should be experiencing. But he took that for us and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in relation to the church, Jesus Christ is, is the head. What does the father think? Is the father jealous because the son gets this glory? No. Look at verse 19. For it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And Philippians chapter 2 is a similar verse along that line. Because Jesus humbled himself. He, his desire was to always please his father. And it says in chapter 2 of Philippians, 9, uh, Philippians 2 verse 9. Verse 2.11, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a privilege to be able to call him Lord Right now, we can do it to our salvation. Later, people will do it to their condemnation. But every knee will bow and give acknowledgement of his preeminence. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 is a similar verse as well. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Moving on, his not only he is preeminent in his person, he is preeminent in his work. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so we see his powerful work of reconciliation. And... Um, that word reconciliation is a, is a beautiful word. It means to exchange hostility for friendship. It's a restitution to a state from which one has fallen. And you know, the Bible doesn't say that God is reconciled. God doesn't have to be reconciled because he's never sinned. He's never gone astray, right? God has to be propitiated. In other words, his wrath has to be satisfied which Christ accomplished on the cross. He, he satisfied the wrath of God by being the sacrifice for sin. But only man or man needs to be reconciled. It's us who's gone astray. It's us who need reconciliation. And so we see that uh, he accomplished this work of reconciliation. How did he do it? Notice in verse 21, or say no, in verse 20 still, it says, having made peace, because there was wrath. God is angry at sinners. God is angry at sin. And you know, you really can't appreciate the grace of God and the love of God until you understand the wrath of God. God is a God who is perfectly holy and righteous. No one could stand before him except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, satisfying his father, drinking that cup 
that he he uh, requested not to drink from, but he did it according to the will of the Father. He drank that cup on our behalf so that we might not have to drink that wrath of God and have to be uh, punished for our sins for eternity. And so he paid that price. How? It says with his own blood, the blood of the cross. And he reconciled us through that. And Peter also uh, talks about that when he says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of, of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Galatians 3.13 shows the irony of all of this. The way that God accomplished this reconciliation is certainly um, ironic because the cross was a symbol of the curse. Uh, in Galatians, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And yet that is the instrument that Jesus suffered on to die for our sins. He took the curse, the very cursed thing, and he turned it into a great blessing. He used the way of the cross and suffering in that way to bring about the most amazing salvation. You see, the wisdom of God is far wiser. Even the foolishness of God is far wiser than the wisdom of man. And the weakness of God is stronger than, the, than, than man. And God used the cross, the weakness of the cross, to bring about the power of salvation and reconciliation. This, this is amazing. Also, we see the who of reconciliation in verses 21 and 22. Notice, this is talking about you and me, and it's not very flattering terms here that are used. Verse 21, and although you were formerly, what? Alienated. Alienated means we were distanced from God. We had no part with God. We were aliens, outcasts. And we were hostile in mind. Uh, we didn't think properly towards God. We hated God. We despised him. Uh, even though we might say otherwise, in our hearts, we lived for ourselves rather than for him. And then it says, um, we were engaged in evil deeds. And... We all know from our own experience that left to ourselves, we're a hopeless case. Uh, we are hostile to God. Our actions show it. And we are alienated from God. But, verse 22, it has a couple of my favorite words, or a couple of my favorite words in the Bible. One of them is B-U-T. But God. Here it is, Y-E-T in my translation. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him. And now he's going to give three things to, to kind of uh, vanquish those last three things which were in the previous verse. He says he has... Um, 
his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, number one, holy. Well, we were alienated. Now we're holy. And secondly, blameless. And third, beyond reproach. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid for our sins on the cross. He accomplished what no human being could ever accomplish. This is why he has accomplished the preeminent work. And only the preeminent person could accomplish such a preeminent work. This is the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel that we don't want to depart from. We don't want to forget it. And this morning we celebrated it at the Lord's table. We don't want to lose sight of it because it's the anchor that holds us in a world that's falling apart. The world doesn't have the glue that holds it all together. But in Jesus Christ, we do. And then finally, verse 23, and I'll close with this. And it is the proof of reconciliation. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What beautiful words. The if then could be translated since. Because when you read this, sometimes it looks like, well, can you lose your salvation? You know, if, if you're saved, you know, can you, can you lose your salvation and, and find yourself an outcast? No. You will continue if you're truly saved. But we do need to examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. And there will be evidence of it. Because the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in some degree in our lives if we're truly born again. And I mentioned my brother's salvation. I just saw it so clearly in him. That's why I have to use it as an illustration again. But he was saved at the age of 73. Uh, before that, he and I would talk. And he, he's from Texas, from Houston, Texas, and very conservative in his politics. And he would like to talk about how horrible the world was and how bad it's going to be, you know, with uh, Obama and everything like that. And in nine, uh, about five years ago, he had heart surgery and he recovered from that and he became born again because he knew enough of the gospel, but he just hadn't appropriated it. And now he realized God gave him a second chance. And he put his trust in Jesus Christ. And then since then, when we had phone conversations, and I visited him personally when I was in Texas a month before he died, and his testimony was very clear. I know the Lord Jesus. I pray for my family. He got up on Christmas when all the family were gathered several times, and he shared with them his testimony, and he invited them to receive the Lord. And so there was a, a drastic change. And... He had a hope for heaven that no one could take away. And, and, and uh, that's where he is right now. I praise the Lord for that. And you and I that know Jesus Christ as Savior, we will continue because the scriptures declare it. 
He is able to save them to the uttermost. You know, I like to say from the guttermost to the uttermost. Because God, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for them. I have a Savior that's making intercession for me. He will continue to do that and for you that have put your trust in Him. He's a high priest that will never fail and never die. And Philippians 1.6, another favorite verse, which says, For I am confident. That sounds pretty bold, doesn't it? I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. My, my brother's wife is very Catholic. Her name's Linda. And I remember a number of years ago, I was at the house, and I, I said to her, I believe I'm going to heaven. I have confidence. She said, that's arrogant. How can you say that? No one knows they're going to heaven until they get there. And I said, well, the Bible teaches that. That's why I believe it. And it's backed up right here, isn't it? I'm confident, Paul says. I'm, I'm not in doubt here. I am confident of this very thing, that he that began a good work will accomplish it because God never, never leaves any job unfinished. Our God completes everything he starts. And he started a work in you and me, and he will complete it. In fact, in Romans 8.30, these are all past tense verbs. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. You know, you're already glorified as far as God's concerned. It's a done deal in Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ. His work, which is preeminent, and his person, which is preeminent. And it's a joy to be with you this morning because I know we have kindred spirit. And we're here this morning to exalt Jesus Christ. Uh, one of our supporting churches had a motto, making much of Christ. And that's what they desire to do as they gather together, to lift up Jesus Christ. Because when he's lifted up, Beautiful things happen. Uh, people get saved. People get excited about the things of the Lord. We need to not lose hope, not lose that hope of the gospel to stand steadfast and firm. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you so much for my precious brothers and sisters in Christ here at Fellowship Bible Church. And I pray for them and I pray for myself and my wife and the churches that we represent. I pray, Lord, that we might be faithful to you and stand firm in the hope of the gospel, never losing sight of our preeminent Lord and your preeminent work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.